everyone. I think we're live. And let me make sure Carrie's unmuted. Welcome to Deprogrammed on Unsafe Space. I'm Carter. And I hear Carrie, so I think she's there. Hey, Carrie. Hi, can you see me? I can. I can see you. Oh, you know what? Maybe, uh, hold on. Now probably everyone can see you. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> I don't think they saw you eating or fixing your hair before the video started today. So that's an improvement. Yes. Uh, so we're figuring things out. <laughs> yes. Yes, we are. Um, hey, Andrew. Andrew gets the honor of being the first person in chat to post. Um, uh, let me open chat. Uh, you know, one. I, I want to explain why I'm interested in this particular topic quite a lot. Okay. Because it's your past. So, of course, you're interested in looking at what you're doing. But why do I care what you did in college, Carrie? <laughs> because I think maybe other people might relate. If they hear why I care, maybe they will care. Um, I think, as many people who watch the show know, I think that one of the biggest uphill battles we face is bad philosophy. It's, it's people who can't think critically, and it's bad philosophical premises. And I think a lot of those come, you know, we can blame the media and we can blame a whole bunch of stuff, but a lot of them come through education. And many of them may come through even earlier education than college, but certainly college is a place where I think a lot of these ideas and poor thinking is, are, become obvious. And so instead of being the place where you're taught to learn reason and logic and critical thinking and deduction, you are taught critical theory and feelings and contemplating your navel lint. And so I think it's important to, to maybe take a look at that. So, you know, we're not really still figuring out the live stuff. We sort of are, Andrew. Um, well, Carrie, okay, Carrie's figuring out everything. We're not super figuring out. We, we've changed platforms a few times to make it, you know, basically none of the, unless we want to pay large sums of money, none of the kind of free stuff is, uh, works super well and and it doesn't work well together with youtube so there's been a lot of weird changes but i mean I got it. We're, I no got we're it. still figuring it out i don't anyway that's that's unimportant um i think we've got it we, we figured it we're done so no anyway, let's get back to the topic <laughs> um hey hey, hey. well topic. come on come on the topic carrie we've, we've meandered <laughs> enough um that's our thing now is meandering. no i'm tired of the meandering <laughs> Okay, so here's why I'm interested in this, aside from it being eye-opening to see what I was reading and writing back then, yes, is that this is 20 years ago. And this is all the SJW stuff that we see having infiltrated the mainstream now. I was learning about it in school tw two decades ago, and I can't imagine... I can't imagine how much worse it is now because I think actually the, the standards have, they've lowered the standards a lot. So it's not even, this is, this is a bunch of hogwash, this paper that we're going to go through that I wrote, but <laughs> I don't, I don't think that the kids who are learning this stuff today would even be writing papers that were this good. Like, I don't think, I think the standard, and I was looking at the, the class description and everything, and they had a part about um, tardiness or lateness policy uh, no extensions are possible. You know, they've gotten rid of all that stuff because now it's like, 
oh, it's uh, it's the patriarchy and it's white supremacy that that the standard of expecting clocks are an invention of the white male patriarchy right like being being on time is an invention of the yeah white male patriarchy and so they all of this stuff is is even more lax now i can't even imagine well i i think you're probably i mean i'm sure you're 100 correct in the college not only has it gotten worse i think a lot of the ideas that we're seeing that we saw in college 20 years ago that you went through, they're now just being pushed down to high school and elementary school, and they're just being pushed earlier and earlier and earlier. So that's one of the things that uh, interests me here. Um, Also, frankly, a lot of people pay lots of money to send their kids to school. Can you just give us an overview, Carrie, of where you went and what you majored in and why you took the class that we're gonna talk about? Okay, so yes, it wasn't all like this. I went to Duke and I majored in biological anthropology and anatomy. So if I had picked any of those papers, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation because they were not SJW in nature. I mean, it was hard science. And I I bet those classes are different now though. I bet you- Especially anthropology, yeah. Yes, I bet you would find even in biological, because it wasn't cultural anthropology, it was biological anthropology, but I bet even in biological anthropology, you would find SJW stuff now. Um, But anyway, so my major, put that aside in one category. My minor was women's studies. Mm. And so this was all of this, and there were a lot of classes. I just, Carter encouraged me to go through this box of old coursework, and I just pulled the first folder off the top. And this is a what is it? Sexualities in film and video, but there's a ton of classes like that. And I have another one in here called sex and sexuality. Um, it was just all, all this stuff was for my minor. I took a lot of critical race theory classes, queer theory classes, um, all, basically all the underpinnings of this intersectionality that you hear about today. Can I and, ask why you wanted to do a women's studies minor? What was the impetus behind that? Because I became, I was a feminist and I considered myself a third wave feminist. At the time, it meant something a little different than it does now. It was more like riot girl feminism back then. Um, it, it had, there was like a big riot girl music scene. Um, my favorite, I think I told you before, I subscribed to this magazine, Bitch Magazine, that. Yeah. It, bitch magazine was it was i mean it was a great magazine for what it was it was really um dense I, I i looked forward to getting it there was a lot of stuff to read in it but i was definitely uh i was part of this sort of um i became indoctrinated to believe that i was a victim of some patriarchy and i'm not saying sexism doesn't exist it does that, and but but what what happened was that this ideology convinces you that you have to look at everything through the lens of being a victim of oppression, and so this I was very interested in this stuff. I don't know. I don't know if I'm answering your question well. Maybe you have to ask me a different question. I think that's a decent answer. I mean, I guess I guess what's interesting is I think we simultaneously have this uh, idea about college for kids that you're going to go to college and, and major in something and that's going to help your career. Uh, but then on the flip side, we accept majors that 
don't really make sense for like having a career like women's studies isn't a thing well see like, but they you think it is and you think it is i thought oh my gosh i'm learning the correct way to look at the world what's more important than this right like you're thinking and think about any sjw's you've met this is their religion so what's more important than figuring out the correct way to look at and interpret the world i mean i was so arrogant i was like writing handwritten letters to my aunt who was um southern baptist and christian and we would go back and forth where she would be writing me letters about why i was gonna burn in hell and i would be writing her letters about <laughs> why she was a uh, part of the heterosexist burn in the patriarchy <laughs> yeah she's part of the heterosexist patriarchy and doesn't even understand her own internalized misogyny you know it was just like <laughs> we're both just like this is the way to look at the world no this is the way to look at the world and um yeah, I, I, it, this seemed very important to me at the time. Interesting, interesting. Okay, well, let's, um, let's. I just before we even go into your paper, let's just look at the assignment, Carrie. Uh, I've got your your paper all pulled up here. So, um, lit one fifteen. I assume that means English one twenty four. Sexualities in film and video. So, and here's your assignment. Referring in detail to one of the films screened so far on the course, and with some reference to the readings we have covered, discuss the ways in which sexuality is connected to race, gender, or location. Which I do they mean like where origin? I don't. I don't know. Um, other reading beyond the syllabus is not required. Blah blah blah. Okay. So Carrie, you wrote about the movie. <laughs> Gilda. <laughs> Gilda is a great movie, by the way. If you haven't seen it, it is a great movie. Rita Hayworth. So, I I don't should we I don't know if we should read the whole paper, but we could. Um, I don't think it's my job to read the paper. Maybe you would want to for, for people or read out parts that you think are particularly important. But I've got the whole thing queued up. So, I, how do you want to introduce this to people? Um. Well, let's just start by telling you that I got an A minus. <laughs> you did at the end here. You got an A minus uh, because I think you could have gone far further, he says here. Uh, you could have analyzed it even more in depth because you weren't quite ridiculous enough. My favorite part, can I just share my favorite yeah. part of this? <laughs> yeah. My favorite part is, let's see, where is, um, Mulvey further emphasizes that the female figure, while constituting the object of the male gaze, also symbolizes the threat of castration to male viewers. Uh, as a male viewer, I, I was, <laughs> well, it, it was enlightening to find that out. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's just read through some of this. So this is basically, we had to read a bunch of coursework, right? And so everybody I'm citing here is some coursework that we had been assigned to read. And then we watched, we spent time. I don't know if you had the, uh, the syllabus that I sent you, but we basically spent each week watching movies and then reading a bunch of SJW pieces and essays. And, um, so like we started week one, we watched Madonna videos, open your heart in vogue and then the reading was by michael musto immaculate connection 
You guys may recognize his name, by the way. He write, he used to write a lot for queer publications, Michael Musto. Um, anyway. Yeah, so everyone, I'm sure, is totally familiar with that. Oh, well, I recognize. Okay. <laughs> um, you may recognize him from such famous queer publications well, as. I think he wrote for like Out Magazine. I think he ended up writing for Out Magazine and stuff. But anyway, okay. The Origins of Sexuality, that was week two. Um, we read Freud, three essays on sexuality. Uh, we read Sedgwick from uh, the Epistemology of the Closet. Uh, week three, Sexuality, the Gays, and Theories of Identification in Cinema. We watched the movie Morocco. And then we read Laura Mulvey, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, which is the one I refer to a lot in this essay. We read uh, White Privilege and Looking Relations, Race and Gender in Feminist Film Theory by Jane Gaines. <laughs> White Privilege. And uh, we also read Performing Disidentifications by Jose Esteban Munoz. Um, Week four, Repression, the Production Code, and the Production of Sexualities. Then we watched Gilda. We read um, The History of Sexuality, Foucault, of course, Power and Sex. Um, week five, Something Queer, Rereading Hollywood. We watched Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. We watched Dry Kisses Only. We read um, There's Something Queer Here. Uh, da, da, da. Colonial Week six, Colonial Space, Masculinity, and Homoeroticism. I think that might've been the week we watched porn. Um, anyway, it goes on and on. Colonial space and female sexuality, uh, representing black masculinity, uh, dressing up glam, bisexuality, performance and identity. Um, this is just on and on and on. Queer youth and tales of the city, sissies and mommy's boys. I mean, that was a whole week dedicated to that. Week 15. Well, I mean, think about how you could possibly have a productive life without really understanding that in depth, Carrie. I don't know. Right. Possible. Week 14, lesbian visibility in Indian cinema. Uh, week 15, this is the pornography week. Week 15, pornography, censorship, and the politics of representation. That week, we watched a lot of porn in class. Like, we learned That's the not uncomfortable at all. <laughs> yes. And we learned the difference between like gonzo porn and just like all the different, I still remember, yes, it was seared in my mind. Um, week 16, autobiography and narratives of identity. And it just goes on and on. Identity, you, you, these recurring things that they care about. Sexuality, it's all about race. It's all about gender. It's all about all the, the intersectionality stuff that we've talked about. Um, but yeah, so let's just, I, if you want to take a look at what I spent money on and took out loans for, and worked several jobs for, um, and my parents spent a lot of money on. Um, do you want me to this read? Is so sad. <laughs> yes, uh, I think you should read some of it. I don't, I don't know that we should read the whole thing, but you, I think you should read like maybe the beginning, some okay. salient points in the middle, and then I, and then your conclusion. I think kind of is a good summary. Obviously, I, and you of, should feel free to interject about with your thoughts of someone who was never in this ideology. Oh, oh, I will. Okay. Okay. Um, <clears throat> in her essay, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema, Laura Mulvey analyzes how the fascination of film is both reflective of and reinforced by pre-existing social ideals centering around a heterosexual male subject. Let's just pause there for a second. Um, because I want to, I know I'm pausing too early. No, but I'm going to pause ahead. anyway. 
this is why this is why a lot of people view this as complete bunk. This is an entire I won't say industry, but an entire uh, field of study, which I'll put in quotes, dedicated to baseless pontification and over analysis, like reading into things. It is most of society heterosexual. Yes. Yes, it is. Were a lot of moviegoers male? Probably. Uh, why is like pre-existing social ideals centered around a heterosexual male subject? It's like it's reading into something that doesn't need to be read into. So movies what, are made for audiences. No, audiences. so what what they believe, and this is this relates to that word othering that we've talked about. Right. They believe that movies are made for straight white men. And not for right. audiences, for straight white men, and that everyone else watching has been othered because it's not catering to them. Well, but again, first of all, I mean, okay, uh, daytime soaps are made for straight white women. Fine, right? We live in a culture where most people are straight, which, by the way, is normal because we would not exist if most of the species didn't want to have heterosexual sex. So that's a normal thing. Doesn't mean that there aren't abnormalities that we can accept as fine, but clearly that's a normal thing. And most of the culture is white. So if you go to China, cinema is not made for straight white males. <laughs> cinema is made for straight Chinese people, depending on what kind of cinema it is. I, I guess my point about reading into this stuff is this is a way to generate to it's it's pseudo intellectual. It's right. It's a way to like make it seem like you're making more profound statements. It analyzes how the fast. I know this is your words, but I'm going to mock you. <laughs> analyzes how the fascination of film is both reflective of and reinforced by pre-existing social ideas. Then like what? So movies are made for normal people. Is that your point? That's the point. Hey, Die Hard's a guy movie. Great job. A movie called Gilda about, you know, starring Rita Hayworth in which she is seductive in 50% of the film is for guys. Yeah. <laughs> yes. What great social statement is that? Why is that? Well, why the, is that academic? So, why does it need so, to be analyzed? This say, so what they do is they take this as, this is indicative of, they say, well, this is evidence of this sexist, racist you know, heterosexist culture we live in. And even though the majority of people are straight or, and in America, the majority of people are white, the, the idea is that you should be, um, it's like equity in film, that you should be catering to, that nobody should be othered. You should be catering to the other, no matter how small. I mean, look at the trans, trans populations, like a fraction of a percentage point, right? No, but, I understand. I guess my point is rather than saying it flatly, like you just did, Right. They could be like, hey, we live in a society where most films are made by straight white males and most people are straight and white. So I don't like that because I think you should make films for other people that don't aren't, you know, that are at the fringes of the bell curve rather in the middle of the bell curve. OK, you can have that opinion, but to then dress it up in 
seemingly academic language about representations of pre-existing social ideals and blah, blah, blah. It just makes it seem like there's something that's, that it makes it seem like there's actual deep thought involved here when there is no thought involved in this. This is just, I don't like society. Yeah, and then they okay. come up they come up with all these papers and then you have to re like we had to read this stuff and cite it and it is ac it is academic right and then you that's why you see people using these they going out into the mainstream now this stuff used to just be i didn't see this in the mainstream when i was learning it in college but it's in the mainstream now and you'll see people in the mainstream now and on social media and stuff now regurgitating this stuff like white privilege as if it's a fact um you know toxic masculinity and that it's <laughs> it's academic <laughs> anyway right. okay it's academic because there's multi-syllabic words yes okay, okay let's finish okay she argues my dog is playing with his chew toy by the way stop it okay <laughs> she argues that most of the relationships between both between characters in a film and between characters and the viewer can be read as originating from this quote straight socially established interpretation of sexual difference end quote which relegates women to passive roles subject to the active male gaze mulvey discusses the two types of scopo scopophilia <laughs> this word scopophilia i had to look it up honestly the only difference apparently between scopophilia and voyeurism is that scopophilics don't care whether they are known like i guess voyeurism you're supposed to be secretly watching and scopophilia it's okay like people know you're watching that's they know you're was... watching yeah okay yeah. mulvey discusses the two types of scopophilia which are encouraged in cinema the first type which she labels only as scopophilia involves the male viewer who takes quote pleasure in using another person as an object of sexual stimulation through sight end quote therefore the female character that is portrayed on the screen exists solely as an object an object for the male gaze of both the male characters in the film and the male viewer in the audience. The second type of scopophilia Mulvey labels as narcissism. It involves a male viewer who experiences identification of the ego with the object on the screen through his quote, fascination with and recognition of his like, end quote. So that's a long paragraph that sounds very academic. That's basically like, I don't like that movies. Guys are like hot women. <laughs> right yes thank you for your brilliance academic <laughs> yay guys like hot women where's you give this woman a phd okay mulvey father further emphasizes this is your favorite sentence that the female figure while constituting the object of the male gaze also symbolizes the threat of castration to male viewers by the way can you go into that because you don't in this paper you don't say how it symbolizes the threat of castration um, is it I mean, just that they don't have penises and therefore like looking at a body without a penis is a threat of castration? I think that's it. I think that's as, as in, so, as, do, do males symbolize the threat of mastectomies? I have no, you know what? I should find the actual Mulvey paper. We should go through that sometime. It's in here. I'm, I'm um, just curious. But yeah, I think, I don't think it's anything more thought, well thought out than that. Just that, uh, seeing a woman and I don't know threat of castration in order to deal with this castration anxiety i know you're you have a lot of castration anxiety sir uh yes. mulvey argues that visual especially especially when there's rita hayworth on a stage in a slinky dress i really i'm really worried about my private parts 
being being cut off. That's my big concern. This is so dumb. Uh, Okay, in order to deal with this castration anxiety, Mulvey argues that visual cinema is able to negate the threat in one of two ways, by either demystifying the woman, counterbalanced by the devaluation, punishment, or saving of the guilty object, or by disavowing the threat through use of a fetish object or, quote, turning the represented figure itself into a fetish so that it becomes reassuring rather than dangerous, end quote. Although there are certainly cases where I feel that Mulvey's analysis is not sufficient or all-encompassing, I would like to demonstrate how her interpretation of visual pleasure could be applied to and used to interpret a sequence from the 1946 film Gilda. So that's how the essay starts. (laughs) It's pause time for for two two things I just want to say. Actually, first, it's just a question. By the way, I love that there's people in chat. So many of these people... uh, I just want to kind of step back. Yeah. Our audience is getting to be awesome. There's like fights happening sometimes in YouTube comments. And like, we don't have to, we don't have to be the ones defending any ideas or arguing. Like we've got enough smart people who are engaged that there's really interesting discussions happening. And by the way, I do have a long list for those of you who are saying, watch this, read this, whatever. There's a lot of great stuff you guys are recommending. So thank you. I just wanted to pause and say that. Now, uh, like Andrew says, why well, yes, academia guys do like attractive women. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> right. It is. It's Captain Obvious. Um, the other thing is, have you ever been? I know you have. I know you have. So I'll, I guess I'll talk to the audience. You ever been in a room with a bunch of people passing a joint? And it's been like hours of smoking pot. So it's not it's not the beginning where you kind of start with an interesting conversation and the conversation hasn't gotten deep, but it's like really lots of pot smoking has happened at this point. And there's always a few people who are just complete idiots going into really deep, but frivolous and meaningless analysis of trivia. Like, do you ever wonder why your hand has the line? I wonder if the universe, like they just start interpreting everything in this like bizarre way they see things and everything it's like they see a it's like a rorschach test kind of but they're they're looking out at the world and seeing everything connected in weird ways that it's not actually connected and reading into everything and everything's a metaphor and everything's something i feel like that's this entire subject this entire (laughs) field of study is that that's all it is um so it's like a fever dream it's a pot dream (laughs) yes yes it totally is also this is the first point in the paper and you do this a couple times and this actually i think is it's a minor nitpick i'm gonna make but uh i'm gonna make it because if i were a professor and actually uh, i have helped my daughter uh write even just little book reports or whatever, and I'll do this even to her. She's 10. Um, You use the word, I feel. This is the first time you've actually talked about what your opinion is. Up until this point in the paper, you're just kind of saying, so-and-so believes, blah, blah, blah. You're giving an outline of uh, who believes what, and now you're going to go into your arguments. But you begin your arguments by saying, I feel that her analysis is not sufficient or all-encompassing. And you use the word, I, you use the, the verb feel uh, often. This is, your, this is your go-to verb for expressing your opinion. By the way, uh, 
I have noticed, I noticed this, this is 20 years ago, by the way, I noticed this in my writing. Um, and I probably in the past five years, maybe before that, but, but when I was leaving the SJW ideology and stuff, it's based, a lot of it is based on feeling like yeah. language can reveal a lot. There's a yes. reason people pick the word feel instead of think. That's why I'm pointing it out because uh, first of all, if I were your professor, I would cross that out and be like, I don't give a shit what you feel. I don't care about your feelings. The assignment wasn't to write about what you feel. Yeah, but this professor wants to know how I feel. Yes, <laughs> yes, that's true. But in a real academic field of study, unless you're doing a psychological feelings test, how you feel is not relevant. Now, I haven't been in academia, like I haven't been in college for you know 20 something years. Uh, and, and obviously I didn't major in women's studies, but the, so the only things that I've read from academia in the last couple of decades have been scientific papers, like a study on blah, 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 whatever it is. None of these things, I mean, I don't read stuff from grievance studies. <laughs> None of the stuff, you, no real paper, no real analysis, no real argument anywhere in the world uses feel as the verb. They use think. And I think the reason for this is if you say, I feel blah, 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 there is no counter arguments to that. No, there's no, you know, what's funny though, if you do read any current grievance studies papers, again, things are so much worse. I mean, there was one that was, feel or do they say oh, think? more than feel they, they do entire papers about, uh, this is a study where my friends and I watch the bachelor and then I get people's responses afterward. You know, like, it's just, it's just stupid, just dumb. Dumb. Right. Yeah. Low IQ stuff. Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. By the way, uh, people are talking about marijuana now. I, I don't recommend smoking about a marijuana. I'm just, I'm, a, I'm agreeing. <laughs> I, I'm just saying that that's, that's an experience that I have had. Um, okay. Look, uh, so, so you're using, so uh, yeah, I just want to point out that you're using the word feel and it does, it does two things. One is it prevents any counter arguments and two is it, uh, it allows you to not have to use logical arguments backed up with evidence or facts about anything. It allows you to just freely pontificate. The word feel is a Pandora's box for, I can say, after I've used that word, I can say, interpret, assume anything. It's all just feelings. But that's and what there is no. I don't have to do anything about it. But that's what SJW ideology is based on. So they prioritize feeling and emotion. They prioritize lived experience. They prioritize all of that stuff over facts, over thought, over ideas. Why is that? I mean, I know why it is, but why do you think that is? Well, like you said, because you can't counter it. How, yeah, can, I, other... how, how can I say, well, you don't feel that way? Right. Well, you've said this many times. What's the thing they're most concerned about? Power. Power. Well, obtaining power and specifically power over other people, right? It's not power over, they're not like concerned about, I really want power over uh, the, the earth and physics. And so I'm going to go <laughs> learn how to build rockets or whatever. They want power over people. That's what they mean by power. And power over people, to manipulate people, you really, facts aren't as important as feelings often. To manipulate people, what matters is a mastery of emotion and the truth is mostly irrelevant. So they, they, they absolutely use emotion. Yeah, they're, they're, that's the basis of their epistemology is it, it's anti-reason. 
So that's all I wanted to point out because even that little thing, letting you get away with that and talking in that way undermines your critical thinking ability. Yeah. But see the professors, these professors would never correct that because that, because they are SJWs feeling right, does no, they matter. want to undermine your yeah. critical thinking ability. This they is exactly want. what they want. Yeah, oh, totally. And as you'll notice, you got an A minus, Carrie. You did a great job. Well, if you show the paper, he barely wrote anything here at all. He yeah, here, hold literally on. gave any criticism whatsoever. Just a lot of check marks on the left. Um, so. Yeah, he, he. There's almost no criticism. In fact, he loves when you say, when you express that you have doubt. He loves it. The only thing he says, good. When you say, I'm, I'm not completely familiar with the theory of the castration threat. So I cannot say I agree with her interpretation of why female characters are often punished. He's like, he's all, however, I can use it as a means of explaining this. I, I don't know why he thinks that's great, but he's like, awesome. You're ignorant, but you can use the theory. Great <laughs> job. <laughs> nice job, Carrie. Well, that's what we want. Ignorance, but ability to apply. To apply the knowledge the that you don't but, have. Um, that, that's like the other paper I sent you where in the margins, I, I basically said something about, um, we, we, this was from a women's studies class called Sex and Sexuality. And we were reading Shulamith Firestone and she believes in pedophilia and was arguing that um, age is a social construct and that adults should be able to have sex with children. And often as, as much as the child can, can withstand, handle. can handle. Yeah. And um, I basically said, you know, that's bonkers in the paper. I, I was like, none of the other people we read this semester agree with her. She kind of stands alone there. And my teacher in the in the comments was basically like, but does she have a point? You know, like, I'm like, no, right. No, you don't have sex with children. She doesn't have a point. <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's part of, I mean, you mentioned Foucault, Foucault, depending on, right. Depending yeah. on how American okay. you want to be uh, when you <laughs> pronounce it. But I mean, clearly we're reading the postmodernists. This is based on a lot of postmodern philosophy. And part of postmodern philosophy is, is the breakdown of epistemology. And so uh, part of the breakdown of epistemology is destroying reason. And part of it is introducing uncertainty about what, like there is no absolute truth, right? The metaphysics of postmodernism is there is no objective reality. That's part of the postmodern metaphysics. So that's why you can start like, well, people can ask weird questions. You can say, well, is this conclusion valid? Is there a point? Even though there was no reason to argument or the reason arguments for flawed, you can kind of ignore all that and be like, yeah, but what do we really, what is truth? Basically, you can kind of ask those kind of questions and people can kind of not, again, it's kind of like being high where it's just like, oh yeah, maybe, the, maybe there's a point, right? Without any rigor. There's no academic rigor because academic rigor requires critical thinking. All right. So should you read some more of your thing here? Carrie, you're, you're muted. I don't know why. Sorry. So the rest of this paper, I mean, I basically go through shot by shot and then just prove what we said at the beginning, which is that this film shows a lot of Gilda's face and you're seeing it through the male character's eyes. And, you know, there's a lot of that. And so it's, and, and the funny thing is at the end, the professor's like, he, th he says, I feel like you could have gone further, though, in analyzing the visual discourse of the film, more careful discussion of individual shots and camera angles is needed to really clinch your argument. A good start, nonetheless. But so 
how much more <laughs> mundane like and then you should get this camera angle and talk about this but so yeah it's, it's sort of a let's see there are several scenes although there are several scenes in the film that might be interpreted through use of Mulvey's analysis I believe the sequence towards the end where Gilda sings put the blame on main boys <laughs> <laughs> to be one of the most obvious. The sequence starts with Johnny hearing music, which causes him to go to the window of his office and open the blinds. He peers mm -hmm. down to the stage and there follows a point of view shot, which shows Gilda on stage performing a song and dance for a mostly male audience. We then get a long shot of Gilda performing the song from the perspective of the audience. It is obvious that in this sequence, Gilda is the erotic object of the gaze of both Johnny, the on-screen male audience, and the gaze of the assumed straight male viewer. Mulvey says that this type of device allows for the, quote, two looks to be unified technically without any apparent break in the diegesis. Diegesis? What's that word? Diegesis. Diegesis. It's the it's a kind of storytelling where there's the the audience is separate from the narrator who's the narrator. like separate from the oh, subject. Thank you. Thank you. The gaze of the spectator and the male characters in the film are neatly combined, end quote. Thus, by combining the gaze of the male characters in the film and the ideal spectator in the audience, the sequence seems to support Mulvey's assertion that male viewers identify with the male characters as a projection of their ego and their ideal self. Duh. Like, what? I don't know. Um, it goes on and on about close-up shots of Gilda's face. An audience member pleads more, more, more. And true two men try to help her unzip her dress. This is when she starts stripping. Um... Of course, the ideal spectator in this reading is assumed to be a heterosexual male. And Mulvey's analysis of visual pleasure does not address the possible alternate readings of viewers who do not fall into this category. And by the way, I think they're totally wrong. A lot of these old movies with the um, really iconic uh, uh, actresses of the time mm -hmm. are beloved by gay men and by lesbian women. So they're not even right that this is like, oh, it's just for straight men. It's like, no. Do you know who watches Bet my Betty Davis films with me? Gay men. Like, <laughs> it's not I mean, like that's like a, a gay man trope to like yes. love Betty Davis. And I think there's a couple other famous, I don't remember who they are, but. Um, well, I mean, actresses. any Rita Hayworth, like all of these, it's, it's, it's kind of a, this assumption's not even true, but anyway. Yeah. And so what if it is? It said like it's a problem. Right. So so what if it is true? Um, someone asked if about um, moral relativism. I just want to clarify. Moral relativism is uh, not, not, obviously it's not a metaphysical thing. It's not an epistemological thing. It's a moral conclusion that you can't know. Uh, basically one's morals, there are no objective morals and, and everyone's morals are equal. It's where, are, are kind of equally valid uh, philosophically. So it's like, oh, you know, you believe in female genital mutilation. Well, that's just, that's a valid moral stance or you believe in whatever, every, you know, everyone has their own, it's true for you or it's right for you, but not right for me. That's kind of the idea of moral relativism, the idea that there are, is no objective morality. Yeah, um, actually, so. Uh, so it's funny because what I just pointed out about how they're kind of wrong because there are other viewers, it's the next paragraph here, it's in the paper. Yeah, I remember you saying that, like, hey, lesbians could like this too. I, I didn't I didn't even reread this far. I'm discovering oh. this. Although prominent and emphasized in the sequence, the heterosexual relations of desire and identification would obviously not hold true for all viewers. 
one might assume that a female viewer could identify with Gilda in this sequence as the object of the male gaze and a projection of her, her ideal self on screen. One could also argue, however, that a female viewer might instead find pleasure in using Gilda as an object of sexual desire, as does the ideal male viewer. Another alternate reading might be found in the perspective of a gay male viewer who might identify with Gilda instead of with the men in the sequence as the object of the male gaze. Alexander Doty describes this type of reading in regards to his first interpretation of Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. He says that his, quote, pleasure initially worked itself out through a classic gay process of identifying alternately with Monroe and Russell, thereby experiencing uh, vicarious, if temporary, empowerment through their use of sexual allure to attract men, end quote. What is hey, obvious? Carrie. What? You know it's how boring. you get bored about money talks? You're totally bored about this. Um, it's, but I'm see, sorry. Oh that's okay. God. Okay, but look at this last part, this last part. Uh, okay. What's obvious with these readings and sequence, however, is that they don't fit into Mulvey's analysis of visual pleasure in cinema. And considering only ideal viewers as opposed to actual viewers in an analysis of sexuality in film, you run the risk of masking alternate readings that were either purposely implied or accidentally realized. I don't feel that Mulvey's intention is to mask these alternate readings, however, in favor of male heterosexual reading. Blah, 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 blah. Yes, it's boring. Um, so Yeah, because it's it's mostly boring because it's nitpicky and irrelevant. It's irrelevant. Who cares? Right? <laughs> like, it's like, uh, you know, maybe it was this. Maybe it's that. What if lesbians watch it? What if a three-eyed clown watches it while sitting on a scooter? Like, who the hell cares? Why do we have to analyze it that deeply? <laughs> like, well, like, it's it's like this. It's a, it's a luxury to be able to spend time contemplating trivialities this deeply yeah so this is yeah this is an expensive duke is an expensive school and <laughs> i know uh this is this is elite academia this is like what i don't know i would say if you're a parent and you have and you're paying for college tuition currently you should find out what classes your kids are taking and see if you can take a look at the syllabus to get an idea of whether they're learning SJW stuff or not. And even like I said at the beginning, the hard sciences back when I was 20 years ago, when I was learning all this stuff, at least they were separate and they were spared. Right. But not so much. Not so much anymore. You've got bi biology classes, math classes, you've got all, any things that you would think would, would they, this would, this stuff would not be able to infiltrate wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. By the way, can I, I have a, I like interacting with chat people um lore lori lori i don't know it's l-a-u-r-e i'm sorry i don't know how to pronounce your name um hey carter how about subjects where you challenge your ideas i'm happy to do that if you got something specific that you think we should talk about that challenges anything that carrie or i believe i think it would be fun just to be clear um <laughs> i think our ideas at least my ideas i'll say are so not mainstream that everything challenges my ideas <laughs> constantly like everything out in the world is <laughs> i have a counter you know a, a different view of than most people but if you there's a particular topic that you think is interesting that everyone wants us to talk about uh let's do that yeah so just if you can clarify that would be great um carrie what did you learn from this class what did you learn from having to uh watch these movies and apply this how do you think it affected you well, let's see what I thought back then, because the very last paragraph, in conclusion, I feel that Laura Mulvey's anal uh, analytical approach to visual cinema is useful. 
in that it draws attention to assumed roles for both the spectator and the characters of films. And then, and then I go on and say a few more things. Um, why, so why is drawing attention full. to the assumed roles for the spectator and characters of films? Why is that? How, how is that useful if you're not a because director? Because th this is what they teach you. And one of the first things you're going to learn as an SJW, again, is that you're not looking at the world with the right glasses. And you have to look at the world with these these sexism, racism, patriarchy, you know, heterosexist. You have to look at the world with these glasses. And so you start to evaluate everything in this way. Pop culture, movies, music. Well, why is the guy singing this about this? And why is the girl doing this? And, you know, everything. Have you ever met those kind of SJWs who everything is about sex or race? That's what they're taught. They're taught that this is critical theory, that this is the way to uh, be, to, to critically engage in the world is to tear everything down through this lens. That through a lens of we're all in these separate identity groups and some of these groups are marginalized and some of these groups are privileged and it's important for us to just constantly comb everything, trying to point out and put it through this SJW filter so that we can then say, yes, this is another way in which marginalized identities are marginalized. Yeah. Um, okay. Also, so embarrassing mom, Gracie, Gracie is yeah. in the chat. So she's another SJW like, like I am. She and I are a little different in that she was part of the, um, the Christian SJW world, which I was not a part of. That was a different, bit of a different echo chamber my echo chamber was pretty much agnostic atheist sjw um but she says it's hard not to t not to see through these glasses even when you take them off it's true you get conditioned to viewing things that way the longer you wear them i would say former yes former she's a former sjw what were you gonna yeah. say um sorry i was responding also to someone else um I guess I think that this this is a way of viewing art that's also quite anti-individual, uh, like anti-individualism view of art. Uh, my the way that I've always viewed art is yes, it can speak to culture, it can have purpose, blah blah blah. But ultimately, the reason that an artist does something is their own personal reason, and they do it for their own gratification, and if they're good at it and they do it because it speaks to them and it's authentic and they like it, if it, that resonates with enough people, it becomes famous. And if it doesn't, it doesn't mean it's necessarily bad art. It just means not a lot of other people share that viewpoint or share that emotional state or whatever it was. And so the idea that you have to look at everything and ask like, instead of just... I don't know, instead of looking at it and saying, oh, this person made this film or did this thing because they individual, they are just individuals expressing themselves or they're a group of individuals expressing themselves and telling a story in a way that they want. You have to look at it if this in a critical eye about how, well, wait a minute, your job is to tell a story that reflects the world that I think is better than this world. And I'm going to nitpick you if you're doing things that I don't think portray the world in a way that I view as socially progressive rather than just portraying what you want because you want to. Does yeah. that make sense? 
don't yes. know if I'm being articulate. No, you are. And so this is, so this, this paper, again, this class we're talking about is from 20 years ago. Look at what they've done. Gracie says they suck all the fun out of life. Yes, they do. Look at what they've done. Look at the impact that this crap has had in the mainstream on film and comic books, video games. I mean, art, young adult novels. Yes, all art. Um, all art yeah. is, is that now they view things through, it's this lens of like how many people of color are in this cast and how many women and how many trans people. And we've got to have, you know, you've got to check off all these boxes, which by the way, the, the um, it's disproportionate. It's not re actually reflect it's to a degree now where it's not actually reflective of the demographics anyway. <laughs> it's like, no. there's, there's a, it's, it's, I don't know. It's Hollywood seems to do if they're, if they're way over here, right. And they're focused mostly on straight white guys. Then the answer to that is to go way over here and just have, make sure that the, the thing you care about the most is that your cast is diverse and do completely the opposite. They don't know how to just put the art first. Well, they're taking your art away from you. Mm -hmm. They're saying that you are not allowed to have your individual expression of art in the way that you want. We're not going to judge it. We're not going to say, I like it or don't like it based on how well you expressed your ideas or what they're, they, they're going to, judge it based on how well you've been, like how your art, they view everything as propaganda, basically. So it's like, well, how will your art move the progressive agenda yeah. forward? And if it won't, then it's bad and you're bad. The purpose of art is only to move our progressive agenda forward. And if it's, I'll say it, maybe progressive isn't even the right word, but it's the, the social justice postmodernist ideology forward. And if your art doesn't do that, shame on you. Yeah. Well, the, I've actually had them say to me outright. I mean, I posted like Silent Light, for example, used to be hilarious, totally propaganda for the most part now, SJW propaganda. And I, I shared a video sometime in the past year of something just, oh gosh, it was all the women on SNL and it was some stupid music video about rape culture. And it just was awful. It wasn't funny. And I shared it and was talking about it on social media. And this professional SJW I know or knew from my previous life. She may have unfriended me by now. Who knows? Um, she was arguing with me and she said outright that the most important thing is the message. She's like, it doesn't matter if it makes me laugh. And that, and, and that, that was my point. I'm like, well, then we're in agreement because what I'm saying is that to an ideologue, the most important thing is the ideology is spreading ideology. And that's more important to an ideologue than anything else. Um, if you're a comedian, but you're an ideologue, you care more about message than you do about comedy. If you're an artist, if you're an actor, whatever, if you're an ideologue, you care more about that. Than, and, and the same thing with, um, not to go off on too much of a tangent, but I see a big difference between ideology and principles. And I've had a friend of mine, a liberal friend of mine who was asking me, she's like, I don't under understand what you mean when you say some people put ideologues, put ideology above principles. Cause she's like, isn't your ideology informed by your principles? No, no. I principles to me, when I use that word, I mean like universal principles. So uh, somebody who says, I believe it's wrong. The initiation of force is wrong. I believe it's wrong to hit people, but they're cool with this, like punching Antifa, punching people because they call those people Nazis. That's an ideologue. That ideologue is a hypocrite. They don't have a universal principle. 
they actually put their ideology here and then they put their principles here and they don't really follow those principles. Yeah, that's an interesting distinction. I'm actually looking up. What's the, I'm just want to look up ideology, uh, just to be, um, I mean, I think it's, I, I think it's like a set of beliefs. Well, you read, read whatever you a find. A manner, but... this is just according to Miriam Webster, a manner or the content of thinking characteristic of an individual group or culture. So that's not particularly bad. The integrated assertions, theories, and aims that constitute a socio-political program or a systemic body of concepts, especially about human life or culture. Um, the second definition is visionary theorizing. See, ideology doesn't sound bad. I think it's started to sound, I think many people view, many people are starting to use the word ideology to describe what I think would be in the past would be dogma, mm -hmm. right? Where they're, they're unquestioned and, and questioning the, the beliefs is not allowed, right? So I would describe myself as someone who has principles. You could even question those principles. We could have debates about like the non-aggression principle. And like, I, I think those are interesting debates to have. Like I, I could question those principles, but a lot of things, I mean, admittedly, a lot of views of mine fall out of principles. Like that's, if it's a principle and I apply it universally, I reach certain conclusions and I, I think that's just integrity. That's not dogma. Um, but dogma would be, I think, a set of beliefs that can be unquestioned completely. I, yes. And that's, well, that's why they are so, they have so many internal contradictions, SJWs, because they haven't right. examined their ideology or their dogma and found that it comes up in contradiction to what they would probably say are some of their principles. And that's why it turns them into massive hypocrites. Yeah, that's a great point. In fact, most of the times I've changed my mind on something in in the past has been someone pointing out like that's inconsistent. Here's how it's inconsistent with the principle that you yeah. share. Or and actually things that I'm not sure of, it's because I'm not sure how to apply the principle. Like there's conflict there and I'm like, I'm not, I don't really understand how to apply the principle in this case. Um, but see, but, they don't, they don't yeah. do, so if you point something out, they have trouble with it. They, instead, they defend the ideology at all costs. They'll sacrifice the, they'll say, right. I don't believe in violence. And you say, but then how can you support this over here? And they're like, well, that's because blah, blah, blah. They have a reason right. for why they're okay with this violence. Or right. I don't support censorship, but I support this censorship. Why? Well, because look, this I, I don't like the person being censored. I, I agree that they should shut up, right? Like, so, well, you don't actually, you're not actually against censorship. Either, either make sure that your behavior and your actions fit what you claim to believe or the opposite. Like don't, but don't, they don't, they don't examine their, they don't examine their beliefs and, and try to make sure that they're living according to them. And they'll say, I think a lot of them don't even know what they believe because they'll say things like, I don't believe in violence or I don't believe in censorship, but they do. Yeah, I think so. Look, to, in truth, there are very few principles that can be applied universally, always, right? Like there's, there's, it's actually difficult to find universal principles. I don't think there are many, but I see two things. One is people applying kind of heuristic rules that work in a bunch of cases and just saying that it's a principle. And so then when you point out stuff where it doesn't work, they're like, well, yeah, that's because blah, 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 blah. They don't actually mean that it's a principle. They just mean it's kind of this 
rule that they follow, right, in, in a bunch of situations. And I think they're not bothering to identify the underlying principle because the underlying principle is, and again, I, this is again, relates back to postmodernism and the, the nihilistic undertones or components of postmodernism, but it, it goes back to the, the, the principles are, are pretty fundamentally ridiculous and scary if you state them outright, right? Like there's no such thing as truth. Right? There's no objective reality. Those are pretty shocking. But, but those are often the principles that are underlying a lot of these belief systems. And you, you don't really work back to what they do instead. They've also been told by philosophers that they can mix and match stuff and have contradictions and that contradictions are okay. But anyone who says contradictions are okay is really saying that there is no objective reality. Like that's what that philosophically means if, if contradictions can exist. So it's scary to kind of state the ridiculous, horrific nature of your principles. And they might not even consciously know what they are. They just kind of have this belief because they've been taught, you take you take whatever expedient. This belief is expedient in this moment. This, this sentence works here, blah, blah, blah. This is good to think about in this way. This is good to think about when in this other way. The fact that they contradict, just ignore that. Just evade that and never explore mm -hmm. the contradiction. Because exploring the contradiction leads to some pretty scary answers, I think. I wanted to answer a question from the chat earlier. PM asked, uh, putting aside if it's right or wrong, can the absence of religion in the home leave a vacuum that leaves students more susceptible to these ideas? Yes. Even I would say, I'm, atheist says yes. Um, but I, can I, I would clarify and say that in the absence of an integrated philosophical and moral code in the home can lead to that. And unfortunately, atheist hat on, unfortunately, there are many, very few non-religious people who do that, who have a, who even attempt to have an integrated, consistent set of principles by which they live. And so I think most, I mean, something like 90 something percent of atheists are like socialist commie people. Like it, they don't, and, and I'm, I'm saying socialist commie kind of derogatorily intentionally to be provocative, but I think most atheists are, are, they don't have, they don't bother trying to get to some integrated system of beliefs. They're just kind of pragmatists and they, they view, they view morals and sticking to values as kind of an impractical, silly thing for idealists to do. Whereas I don't think Christians do that generally. Christians think that there's value in the moral code that they, they live by. So my answer to this would be anecdotal. And, and, and I'm sure some of you have, are fans of Jordan Peterson. There's a, he, I'm going to mangle this probably, but he talks a lot about Nietzsche and the death of God. You know that bit, Carter? Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. Mm -hmm. So the whole death of God with like this, this, which is exactly what you said, creating a vacuum where something else can come in to be worshiped. Um, and that definitely I think has happened, I think on a large scale in our culture and in my personal life that had just happened. Like I was raised as a Southern Baptist and then um, 
I left that faith behind. It took me about, it was like a three year transition in belief, but um, yes, by the time I was taking this, this class, probably, what was this, probably sophomore year, I don't know. Um, there was a vacuum there. And so SJW ideology became my religion. It took the place of God for me. It became the set of like, it, it took the place of moral code and a way of living and a way to look at and interpret the world. Um, and it it's ultimately hollow. Like it's ultimately a hollow belief system. There's not a lot of purpose there and there's not a lot of truth there. And I think people who substitute God, who, who try and substitute this stuff for God, it's one of the reasons I think they're very um, miserable. They become very miserable people. <laughs> Sorry. But yeah. anyway, that's well, I mean, my I, answer. I, yeah. I mean, I know Jordan Peterson's talked about this. Um, I know Stefan Molyneux talked about this. Um, I, I, and I think there's definite truth here, which is that the, and I'll say this as an atheist, the philosophers came along and they, destroyed the church right they they poked holes at the church and they pointed out logical inconsistencies and they they attacked the church um and they for many people not all people many people uh did not succumb to those attacks but for much of society they were able to tear down the church people were they, they raised the church to the ground people were like screw it there are problems with this but they didn't replace it with anything and that leaves this huge vacuum for like, okay, well, if that's, if it's not replaced with anything, you get, it can be replaced with anything, right? Worship. I think one of the things that's been replaced with almost, uh, probably I would say mostly is worship of the state and or power, right? It's, it's worship of so many people who are atheists. I, I call them state theists because they don't, they're not actually atheists. They just believe that whatever the state wants, especially if it's a democratic government, that's where morality comes from. That's what's correct. And that's just irrational worship of a different God. You've just changed your belief system to worshiping the state. And I, a couple of people said, um, starting with uh, Artema said, I think consistent morality can be derived from logic and reason. Uh, I, I mean, I agree as an atheist, but very few people even attempt to do that and live their life. And so we get most atheists are just directionless, purposeless pragmatists who kind of fall victim to their own urges, whether it be um, power or comfort or whatever it is, and they end up worshiping the state or worshiping um, something else. So, yeah. by the way, teaching kids I've probably told the story before, but we have a lot more audience since I told the story because it was a long time ago. I do believe that basic morality should be accessible to five-year-olds. Like it shouldn't be, morality isn't so insanely complex that, you know, basic moral codes can't be taught to five-year-olds. And someone, someone in this chat said, uh, Joe Tundra said, if kids aren't taught at home, they will develop the morality from whoever tells the best story. I disagree with that. I think whoever tells the best story is important. That is true. Um, and if they're not, if they're taught nothing, if they're not taught how to think, then the best story will control and will win. That's true. But you can also teach them to think in terms of principles, and it's not actually that hard. And once they think in terms of principles, 
narratives don't matter as much. They become much more vaccinated against narrative-led thinking. And the one silly example I'll use, and it's a small example, but um, I, I know you've heard it before, Carrie, but I also know you kind of like this story, I think. Um, when my daughter was really young at some point, I don't maybe five, five years old, I guess, I don't know. She, um, we were having a discussion about brushing teeth before bed and she wanted me to read something else and whatever. And so I made a deal with her, like, I'll read this, this one thing, if then you promise to brush your teeth afterwards. And she said, okay. So I read the thing. And of course, being a five-year-old, after I was done reading, what do you think she did? <laughs> I don't she want did to not want to brush her teeth. <laughs> right, yeah. I don't want to brush my teeth, right? And instead of getting angry, and instead of trying to force her, or threatening spanking, or anything like this, or trying to might is right my way into forcing the kid to brush her teeth. I said, okay, that's fine. Um, that's a great principle that you've just come up with. Uh, the new rule, I use the word rule instead of principle because she was five. So the new rule is uh, we can break promises. That's awesome. You can, you broke, you made a promise. You're breaking it now. So that's the new rule. I'll break promises. Next time I promise you, you can have ice cream or dessert or do this or that. I'll just, I can break it whenever I don't feel like it because you don't feel like it. So you can break your promise. That's a great rule. I'm happy to adopt that rule. And you could see in her eyes, she did just went, you know, her eyes got like saucers and she just, you could see her, the wheels turning and she was like, I'll brush my teeth. <laughs> like she did not want, she could, and she's only, she was like five, maybe six. I don't remember, but it was pretty easy for her to see the dire consequences of that being a universally applied rule. And it doesn't, it doesn't take much to get kids to see like, Hey, you can, when you have a principle, it needs to be universally applied. And if it can't be universally applied, there's a problem. And yeah. I may not be the best example, but it's a, it's a pretty silly example, but she now when she's older, she's pretty damn good at applying principles universally sometimes to win arguments against me and it works so it's not it's not well, difficult i think you should teach that to sjw's <laughs> i know a lot of adults who don't know that rule um yeah fair yeah so is there an oh pete points out in grades two and three students learn to analyze gender roles in fairy tales yes this is what so instead of learning about universal principles and learning focusing on the things that kids need to know, like grammar, <laughs> reading comprehension, math. They're learning about gender. They're learning about, by the way, I talked about this with a friend the other day. I don't know if you guys have seen it. This is, I have to laugh at it because it's so, it's so upsetting otherwise, but they have this, this thing that they show to teach kids. It's called the gingerbread man. And it, they, oh, I've seen this. yeah, where they're teaching elementary school and even kindergartners about like how you have the biological sex and a gender identity and, you know, sexuality and all. And, and then, but what's funny that my friend and I were laughing about is they replaced the gingerbread man with the gender unicorn because the gingerbread man was too gendered. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It sounds very gendered to me. Right. So she was saying, and the, so now it's, now it's a mythological creature that doesn't even exist. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> the gender unicorn. Uh, anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, 
Carrie, just to get back to your, I, I know we're me. I know you don't like meandering, and we've been meandering a lot the past few days. I don't know why. Maybe just do old people meander, but uh, just to kind of get back to your college experience a little bit, and and that class in particular. Um, when you were so that what was that class? Sexualities in film, I think, was the name. Hold on, let me look up the. Yeah. Sexualities in film and video. Yeah. Um. What, you know, what do you think the, do you think that they, do you think that the, the professor actually believes that this is all important? Or do you think that this is just, they know that they're destroying your ability to think? No, I think that they are lying to themselves and to you. I think that they believe this is important because they make a lot of money teaching this crap. And they feel they get their ego is built on this. They're like, I'm at an elite institution and I'm the director of gendered studies and other nonsense bullshit. Sorry, I cursed. Um, but they, they get demonetized regardless. I'm pretty sure yeah. we could, you know, throw up porn and it wouldn't matter. They hate us. So I was just looking at the textbook list for this class out in culture, gay, lesbian, queer essays on popular culture, the history of sexuality, Michael Foucault. I, so I, a bunch of these books, I wish I still had the books because we could go through them. I, I finally donated a bunch of my SJW stuff a couple years ago to make room. So I don't have a lot of these books anymore. But um, um, but yeah, anyway, the, the people who write this stuff, who write the books, the people who are teaching it in classes, the people who are teaching it now, the kindergartners, yeah. they believe in it. They're, they've duped themselves. They believe this is important. And I think deep down, they probably, there's some, there's some un, something unsettling there. Cause I, I don't think deep down you can be a fully, you can't be a fully conscious person and peddle this crap. That's my, no, I mean, that gets back to our talk with Gina Gorlin about you have to be in that other mode of self-deception. I think yes. to do a lot of this, but so this was 20, 20 something years ago <laughs> that you were in college. We can assume it's gotten worse, Carrie. Um, just curious, people in chat, how many of you, hey, Westy, ask something if you're going to give us money, which I appreciate. Oh, thank awesome. you. Super thank chat. You. Yeah. Ask like, get something out of it. Don't just donate. <laughs> Don't give us charity. Get, get something back. Um, so tell us to talk about something. Um, where was I going? Oh, do people in chat have kids that are they're like are going to college or are you are you or are like approaching college age? Because, you know, I love my child, but I got to be honest, if she was like, I'm going to go to I'm going to go to Duke and take women's studies classes. I'm pretty sure I would be like, you know, here's the website for Starbucks. They're hiring. I'm not paying for. I'm not yeah. Paying. So in retrospect, here's what I think my parents should have done. So I worked several jobs and I took out loans, but my parents still paid a hefty, hefty amount of tuition. Um, and in retrospect, I mean, I think if I were my dad, I, I think he, I, I'm totally in full support of a parent saying, I will not pay for this. If this is what you're going to take, I will not pay for it. Yeah. They were happy with, well, actually, even with my hard science degree, they were not really convinced. I, they weren't really sure I was going to do anything with it. And I didn't, by the way. 
Um, but they, they, but, but, but what are you laughing? I just, so I just, I just thought of that when you said like, I didn't, I just, it just occurred to me that, uh, you had an entire career that you could have started four years earlier. Yeah. Well, yeah, I had to, so here's what happened. Here's what happened. I went to Tanzania. I know we were going to talk about Tanzania at some point. I spent half of my senior year in Tanzania studying colobus monkeys. I did, I finished a certificate in primatology and I, I needed to go to grad school. And, but what happened in Tanzania was that I started, I had been all this brainwashing, all this, look at everything through this lens, right? I became really disillusioned while I was there. And I felt like, oh, you know, and then some of this is true, but it shouldn't have, it shouldn't have derailed me in the way it did. I felt like, um, what I was studying wasn't that important when looking at, you had like these wealthy, mostly white Westerners coming over to African countries and studying um, like deforestation or environmental issues or the reduction of monkey populations, right? And I'm like, yeah. that's not really important. These, you know, look at all this poverty around me and look at, look at you know, I, I became convinced that it wasn't that important. And, but, but then did I go on to work in it like to fight poverty in Tanzania no what did I do I directed myself into well I'm I'm gonna fight for this ideology right so I the first I worked a couple of odd jobs after that and I was like thinking about well maybe I'll save up money because at that point I knew if I was gonna go to grad school it's like I had to pay for it myself I was like maybe I'll save up some money and go to grad school I'll think about it but what I instead did was my first job that really incorporated my ideology was working as uh, a production assistant and a management assistant for uh, Margaret Cho's, who, the person who was her manager at the time. Right, right. And that allowed me to bring in all of this stuff I had been indoctrinated with in college and put it to use and feel like I'm changing the world for the better through comedy and like working with comedians who are going to address racism and sexism and homophobia and you know taking those comics to colleges and and just really emptying the coffers of the you know we could make i think i mentioned this in a previous video uh, most comedians like a straight white male comedian you got you got the college entertainment budget to work with and that may not be that much but man, with Margaret, we, I could go in and take like, we're gonna take the money from the LGBT group. We're gonna take the money from the people right. of color group. We're gonna take the money from the women's group. We're gonna take the money from the entertainment group as well. And the Asian all of which you're paying for if you're paying for your kid to go to college because that's part yeah. of student fees that get distributed to those groups, just to be right. clear. So you could make a killing at colleges if you checked off enough marginalized boxes. So this is one thing that's interesting about this story, Carrie, is it reminds me that I, I see this, the most obvious glaring example of this is, is people who say, for example, there should be more women in science. Women who say, there should be more women in the STEM fields. And then you can ask them, what did you major in? Women's studies. Uh, it's this idea that to make a change in the world, the noble thing to do is to choose the easy path of least resistance and not actually do a damn thing, but to just argue that other people should spend their time, energy, and money doing things, but you're not actually gonna do anything. It's the weakest, most pathetic way to pretend that you're actually helping. If you want to help, if you want more women to be in STEM and you're a female, 
go into STEM. Well, no, but so here's what's happening. They're taking the women's studies into STEM. They're changing STEM. They're changing. Because they they're don't so want to do actual STEM. Right, right. They don't want it. They want to do women's studies and they want to do critical race theory and they want to do indoctrination of their belief system, but they want to say that they're in STEM. They want to be in. That's why that's why now somebody said, I don't see how you could be a hard science major and then a women's studies minor. Oh, my gosh, it's more than possible. And now you can it's it's integrated. I have a friend who um, she posted about this uh, conference. Um, it, it was it was like a not a biological anthropology conference, but something related. Anyway, this is a hard science, this field that she's in. The whole thing she was posting about was about gender identity in the field and, you know, race consciousness. And, and I'm like, did you guys actually do any science at the conference? It was all SJW stuff. Right. And well, these and it's organized. Even... She's one of the organizers of the science march. Right. They well, organize that. Is... Scientists don't have marches. Right. This is, this is the thing. Yes. They're, they're corrupting they're corrupting what we view as hard sciences. And that's why it's important to remain vigilant because she's not in the hard sciences. She's in a subcategory that she surreptitiously got into the hard, she got the label of hard sciences without being in the hard sciences, right? It's like, what was, what was the conversation we had the other day with someone, Carrie, where they're like, feminist astron astronomy was a thing somehow? It's like, that's not a thing. Yeah. It's just astronomy. Feminist astronomy means you don't do any astronomy. You just do feminism talking about the stars. That's yes. all. So, but James Lindsay was the one who, we were talking about something on Twitter once. I think this is back when, before I came out as anti-SJW and I had my old Twitter handle, for which was former SJW. And he's, he's the one that told me, look at this stuff from the astronomy forum on Facebook. And it's all SJW stuff. It's all rules. Right. This is this is in the hard sciences. So don't think that just because your kid is if your kids at college and you're like, oh, thank goodness, they're not taking any sexuality in film and video classes. Look at their biology syllabus. Anything, yeah. any of this crap that you see in there, like take a look at the syllabus. You know, maybe the maybe the real takeaway here, Carrie, because this is something that uh, I struggle with as a parent of someone who's nowhere near college. We have, I think a lot of us grew up in an era in which we could trust someone else with the education of our child and not ask a lot of questions. We were like, well, you know, go to a good high school, they'll go to a good college. I'm going to trust that it's going to get taken care of. I think we're, we're definitely in an era now with no matter how old your child is from preschool all the way through grad school, if you're having any sort of control or involvement in your child's education, you need to really look at the curriculum and understand what they're being taught and and oppose and not fund things that are destructive to them. So if they're going to go, don't worry, dad, I'm majoring in biology. Well, if you look at the curriculum and it's feminist biology, that's not biology. Or feminist astronomy, that's not astronomy. So I think parents need to step up and do a little bit more work to vet what it is their kids are being taught. Something, Carrie, that bothered me. Can I ask you this question? Because you and I grew up at the same time, and I did not have this in high school, but I'm wondering if you did. Did you have to take basic logic and reason in high school? I did not. And Neither I did I. But it's not, it's not that difficult. 
it's not something that you can't teach in junior high school. It's not, it's not rocket science. I mean, yeah, if you're going to get into reading Aristotle or something, it, it can get intense, but basic logic and basic critical thinking, those are, those are not difficult subjects. There's a reason that they're not taught in high school. And I think that reason is primarily they undermine the indoctrination in college to a large extent. I, people wouldn't, they wouldn't fall for this crap if they understood how to think rationally before they started taking these classes. So that's another, that's a subject that I, I think we really should push on our kids as early as possible. Really, even, even my daughter who's 10, I'm about to start teaching her just basic truth tables. Like this is how, you know, not anything difficult, but like, this is how, this is how basic truth tables work, right? So you I understand some really basic fundamental tenets of logical thinking because I think that I think it should that's be taught, the, that's the but it's, it is an antidote. I think it should be taught, but it's also why they attack. They, you will see them saying, and we've talked about this before, they say that logic is a tool of white supremacy, that reason is a tool of the patriarchy. So they- I mean, I just, can I just say something? <laughs> that is so praiseworthy of white supremacy and the patriarchy. I mean, what a, I can't think of a higher honor to give any like, wow, reason and logic are the tools of the patriarchy. If yeah. that's true, worship the patriarchy. They My sound God, like they have brought us everything good in the past thousand years. Hold up here. What I'm, what I hear you saying is that they sound like white supremacists. They, they attribute, we went through that yeah. whole list before where SJWs attribute all this stuff to white, white people. It's like, wow, you guys sound like like people of color can't what were they teaching in new york schools that we should get rid of any uh tardiness rules because people of color can't be on time because being on time is something that is a function of whiteness it's like you sound like a and you are a crazy racist <laughs> right so imagine this carrie imagine a a white male stands up and says white men are responsible for every single scientific invention and piece of progress in the entire history of the human race. Now that's not true, but imagine they stand up and say that, right? Everyone I think would say, that's racist. That's not true. That's a fantasy. White men are not responsible for 100% of everything that's ever happened. That's based on logic or, sorry, that's based on science, any technological advance. But at the same time, they say, well, logic and reason are just tools of <laughs> white men. It's like, well, logic and reason are what got us all of those things. So if you're going to give credit for logic, if you're going to accuse the logic and reason of being a tool of the white patriarchy, you are also giving credit to the white patriarchy for literally everything scientific that's ever happened. Every piece of technology, every piece of science all gets credited to the white male patriarchy. If that's, if that's your argument, which it shouldn't be, be clear. Okay. So I just <sighs> want to share something real quick. I have to go, but let me oh, share yeah. this. Share your thing. Look. Um, this is feminist biology. <laughs> <laughs> feminist By the biology. way, I, I noticed that symbol on the right is, um, it's very, it's very much about biology. Yeah. By um, the way, I almost, there was a point in uh, my life where I was about to get a, that symbol, a big version of that symbol, the women's symbol with a fist in it tattooed on my bicep and I'm so happy I did it. Uh, I'm so bummed you didn't do that. That would have been awesome. <laughs> that would have been so great. 
my ex-husband at the time was like, I don't think you should get that one. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, you should thank him. But I think it would be awesome if you had it. <laughs> uh, feminist biology read this? is an approach to biology that is concerned with the influence of gender values, the removal of gender bias, and the understanding of the overall role of social values in biological research and practices. Feminist biology was founded by, among others, let's, what are the chances it's a white woman? Dr. Ruth Blyer Blier of the University of Wisconsin-Madison, who authored the 1984 crazy. work, Science and Gender, a Critique of Biology and Its Theories on Women. This woman is not a scientist, okay? Feminist biology is not biology. It's feminism. Can I, can I explain <laughs> how to interpret all these, Carrie? This, there's a yeah. really easy thing you do. Just insert the word against in between the first and last words. And that it's it's feminist it's or feminists it's feminists against biology, right? <laughs> Feminism biology feminist biology is feminists against biology. Feminist physics feminists against physics. That's all it is. I started a Facebook group by the way that I thought was hilarious. It's called Feminists Against Feminism, and um, I invited some of my professional SJW friends, and that that's when I got unfriended by some of them. Yeah, yeah, that was probably going a step too <laughs> but far. But it was a joke. <laughs> by the way someone mo mentions that that symbol can be misinterpreted as a woman being punched which i think is pretty hilarious <laughs> yes yes it could be yes it could be but um, uh, okay i gotta go all right gonna wrap it up thank you everyone Bye. for for watching carrie needs to leave thank you it was fun thanks for talking in the chat i i'm really so grateful for you guys participating and giving us cool things to talk about. And yeah, I saw somebody was saying to you, Carter, they want to challenge us on something about taxes. Yeah, sure. We'll figure that out. I think it would be great. Also, um, I would love to hear, I don't know if we have enough people for this yet, but I really enjoyed, I did like an impromptu thing on like, I think last Saturday or whatever. And just to, it was just impromptu and it was uh, to kind of pontificate about Epstein and it was great to have people in our chat like I think we could just start to have more conversations that are just open chat where people bring stuff they want to talk about and we just all talk about it so if that's something you guys want if you think we have enough people in the viewing audience to do that then we should start doing that because it's a lot of fun and sometimes you guys challenge us in interesting ways so thanks everyone Carrie go to work we miss you thanks guys <laughs> we'll see you later don't forget to subscribe and like and all that stuff. <laughs> Bye. All right. I got to go press some buttons to make this look semi-professional at the end. Okay. Thanks, everyone. <laughs> um, also, yes, I like Open Chat Fridays. It's a good, it's an interesting idea. But we'll see if everyone else likes it. Later, everyone. Mm -hmm.